Hello and welcome to the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Jesse Hyatt. And I'm Mike Varley and we are here in our final week of Staten Island. Yeah, we walked the south shore of Staten Island this week and we've been here for a full month. That's right. It's gone by very quickly. We've had a fantastic time and summer has eclipsed into fall. And you may notice that we have some colorful outfits on. Yeah, if you're watching, you may notice. If you're listening, you may not notice. You might notice in in the sparkle in our voices. Oh, yeah. So I'm wearing one of my fall outfits, which is this jumpsuit that's made by Ace and Jig. It's one of my favorite pieces of clothing that I have, and I I saved it for our walks. This was not a new piece for this project, like some of the clothes are. It's something that I saved from my wardrobe already. And actually the jacket I'm wearing is also something I saved. This is an Uzbeki uh, embroidered jacket that I got from a uh, one of these sales where people, there's lots of different people that bring things like a, would you call it like a trunk show or a vintage sale? It's not a vintage piece, but it's uh, one of these these sales where people bring their wares and yeah and sell things yeah i mean it's a beautiful <laughs> jacket thank you yeah and i won't go into as much detail but i'm wearing all clothes that we purchased secondhand at the start of this project yeah and we last weekend took a whole mess of photos for our fall outfits and we're in the process of going through them now and getting our website up and going and maybe having an accompanying video with it. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, all that will be up. If not, it's because we have a lot going on and you will be seeing it in the coming days. But it'll be up soon. Yeah, but I I have a feeling it, it will be up by the time you see this. We'll see though. But yeah, we're very excited about this season's outfits. I think it may be of the four seasons the the most playful and yeah you know with the with the summer and the winter we had to be a little more practical with consideration for the weather and with this one we were able to cover ourselves and hopefully it will be warm enough what we yeah have. well we have at least i i know i have a few extra jackets and we have extra we have scarves and hats that we put logos on and yeah so if it starts to get too cold near the end of the season, we can just add layers. That's right. And uh, here's one of our logos as well. Not the traditional HV logo, but you can see there's varlet on my jacket. We modified this jacket, which if I were able to turn around right now, you'd see it's a United Auto Workers jacket, part of our union theme. Yeah, so we'll be talking about that union maybe in the coming weeks on the podcast. Yeah. But that's but that's the union that we're representing this this season and in order to have some conversation around labor yeah. and the importance of unions in general. That's right. So, just a first taste with all of our clothing stuff. Expect us to talk about it more in the coming weeks. We're very excited about it and yeah, we just wanted to start fashioning them for you during the podcast. Yeah. Have you ever, so you you had to wear a uniform in school, right? Yes. 
so do you, I never had to wear a uniform. I've never chosen to wear a uniform until now. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not sure how much of my excitement is coming from just that I really love the clothes that I picked out for fall and how much of it is switching my uniform up. Like I've really liked my summer clothes too, but I've never ever worn clothes repeatedly in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, when we wore the uniform, it was the same outfit for the whole year. Yeah. And we didn't really get as many opportunities to change. We, in grade school, first through eighth, I think there was some slight shifts between fourth and fifth grade. Mm. Like you could wear a golf shirt instead of a button shirt and a tie. When you got to fifth grade? That's right. You were old enough to golf. Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. But that was always a big one because, you know, ooh, you were liberated from the tie. Right. Which was Wow. A cool, yeah, that's actually wild to be wearing a tie up until fourth grade and then not have, like... Yeah. Mo- they were typically clip-ons. it would be the opposite. They were plaid clip-on ties. Okay. Uh, green, like a dark forest green, a white, and with like very thin gold stripes on it. Okay. Plaid pattern. That and then cute. it was whatever. I mean, I, I think we just everybody hated it while they were wearing yeah. it. Uh, it's kind of funny to think about now. And then uh, in high school, we the big distinction was that blazers. Mm. Freshmen and sophomores wore uh, like a uh, maroon blazer. Okay. And juniors and seniors wore a blue blazer oh wow and then there were ties as well mm-hmm. and i think that there was a distinction between the freshman and sophomore ties and the junior and senior ties there's definitely a distinction between the freshman and sophomore girls skirts and the mm. uh, junior and senior girls skirts yeah so was there a lot of because again i did not do a uniform ever in school but was i I've, I've heard and like from watching movies and stuff is there a lot of trying to change the uniform like you know the girls raising the hemline or or i guess even with your like pants raising the hem or shorts raising the hemline if it's hot or trying no, to remove your tie or unbutton your shirt or like what was there anything like that that you i don't remember? have a strong recollection of guys trying to get around i think you know like top button unbuttoned Mm -hmm. it's not supposed to be unbuttoned so maybe that was a thing right uh and then you know you had to have your shirt tucked in so having it tucked out was a problem girls definitely the skirt was a thing but that was like yeah that was just kind of a weird teenage sex claiming thing i think Mm. where it was like i want to be more sexy not like I, like it was certainly wasn't a comfort thing, you know. Yeah, it well, was probably more an even thing. like a, just the aesthetics of like. I feel like when a skirt hits at a certain point, like it's usually supposed to be below the knee, right? Uh, or no, maybe, I don't think it was. I think it was just above the knee at the time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes it just looks like depending on your leg shape too. It's like maybe you want a shorter skirt or a, le- a longer skirt because it makes you look less frumpy. You Maybe know, like I mean I feeling it like definitely you look nice. it definitely felt like signaling in high school right. from what I yeah. recall. I mean that makes sense. Which you know that's also what they show in the movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean it was totally just life imitating art. 
You yeah, know? yeah. What do you think the point, I mean, we have, so we have these uniforms that we've made for ourselves and the reason for us is because clothing communicates something and we are deciding what we want to communicate mm -hmm. in what we're wearing. What do you think the point of the uniform for kids in school is? I think it is in order, well, I mean, it depends who you're asking. I, what I think it functions as positively is a way to eliminate competition and mm -hmm. class from the day to day and to not, yeah, I mean, nobody, I'm sure that if the entire high school had to wear, wear what they wanted to wear, it would be the people that were rich, the people that were poor, the mm -hmm. people that were looking to look tough, the people yeah. that were looking to look sexy, and none of that existed. Right. It was at most just people complaining about wearing the uniform. Right. And that was kind of a minority of people that were super vocal about it, and then like maybe a, a larger ring of people that just did it because it was, you know, like talking about the weather. And then there was, the, I would say the majority of people were just like, whatever, this is just what it is. Mm. So I've, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it democratizes things in a weird way. Or maybe democratizes isn't the right word because, I don't know. It, it certainly limits choice, but it, it makes competition uh, disappear. Right. Yeah, I can see it being both positive and negative. I guess just thinking about the way that we've chosen our clothes and the way that I chose my clothes in grade school, middle school, high school, all, all of that, and then certainly going into fashion school in college, like being able to dress myself in school led me to being in the arts and led me to being a creative person and feeling good about that and feeling like that was something that I had a skill at and pushing me into go. I don't know if I would have ended up going to fashion school if I had it to wear a uniform. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have access to that alternate timeline. Right. So I don't know. But it does feel as someone that never had to wear the uniform and never experienced that myself. And I have no like it, it just sounds so oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, but maybe it allows, like, if this is how we're communicating with people that we don't communicate with, with our words, maybe if you aren't able to communicate with your clothes at all, it could give you more incentive to learn how to communicate with your voice or to communicate with your math skills or your science or whatever it is that you're learning in school or through sports or whatever, like, other things that you have access to. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea that somehow it reduces people to some sort of, uh, you know, non-personality blobs or like this kind of uh, Pink Floyd marching through a drab hallway mm -hmm. situation is just, it's not true. There's yeah. people that will, you'll still have personalities through any number of means. Right. So uh, it, you know, is it necessary? I, I guess not. I didn't, in retrospect, don't have any particular problem with it. Yeah. But I'm sure I was among the people that were, you know, complaining about it because it was fashionable to complain about. Right. Yeah. But this week, which was our first week wearing our fall outfits, we already had somebody immediately communicate with us as a consequence of wearing them, which was part of our mission for yeah. thinking about what our clothing was going to be. 
So we were doing our first day walking the south shore of Staten Island, as we mentioned earlier. The south shore has all sorts of interesting aspects to it that we're going to talk about. But we were walking down Amboy Road, which is one of, I'd say, three major roads in the south shore of Staten Island, the other two being Arthur Kill Road and Highland Boulevard. So walking down Amboy, and we're in an area that's very wooded, uh, not great sidewalks situation, which is common of all three of those roads as mm -hmm. well. And we come upon a business. The business name escapes me right now. I don't know if we should bother to look it up or not. Yeah. It was a garage of some sort. And it was right in the Mount Loretto State Forest area. Mm -hmm. For those that want to go onto their uh, devices and look it up immediately. And we were walking by and a gentleman calls out to me and goes, hey, where'd you get those clothes? <laughs> now, I was wearing that day a silk shirt, purple, gold, green, uh, kind of looking like a ink blot pattern in a way. Sure. Looking, looking very like late 80s, early 90s, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then some purple pants as well to go with that. Mm -hmm. And his first response to me was, hey, where'd you get those clothes? I used to wear those in the 60s in Washington Square. He said he had that shirt. Did he say specifically he, said he had, he that, had shirt? that shirt? He said he had that shirt. Which is funny because it's <laughs> actually a woman's shirt. I don't think he had that shirt. No, I don't think but he had he that shirt. But he probably had a shirt that had the same colors or something. Yeah. Or it was also silky or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it has the buttons on the other side. But in all other, it doesn't have like shoulder pads or anything like that. Yeah. It's just a blousy silk shirt that I acquired at a store just above, uh, in, in NoHo, uh, at this kind of, it's like a antique store that uh, sells shirts in bulk like that. Yeah, so, it's the one that has the lion, right? Yes, I, yeah. yeah, I forget the name of the all store the, as well. All the things or, yeah, whatever. Yeah, so, <laughs> My response to him was, well, what happened to the shirt? What happened to the yeah. clothes? And he said, oh, my mother got rid of all those. <laughs> and this proceeded into a conversation that was ultimately, I think, what we're looking to achieve when we're wearing these clothes and something that I think will happen more frequently as we wear these fall clothes. Yeah. And we ended up getting involved in a 15-minute conversation with this very... Uh, assertive, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, boy, I don't know, gregarious or boisterous kind of approximates it, but isn't quite the same either. He's definitely a person that likes to control the conversation, mm -hmm. was not somebody that was being uh, mean or anything, No, but definitely somebody that you were kind of like looking for if you went against whatever his opinion was, uh, you might start getting into a fight with him, <laughs> I think, at the same time. Uh, we did not cross opinions no. in any way, but he was, uh, you know, asking what we were doing, and immediately we got engaged in a conversation about Staten Island. He also seemed to know a lot about the city, or he fancied himself as a person that knew a bunch about the city. He had some, like, stray history facts here and there. Yeah. But conversational history facts, things that 
you know, you wouldn't necessarily question during the course of the conversation, but the knowledge might not be any deeper than whatever you were getting at that point. So, yeah, he was he he seemed to have his grandson with there, and maybe his son or yeah. We assumed maybe that's how the, what the relationship was. Yeah, but. and so the the he was the the grandson came up very quiet, young kid, and he was like, "Hey, Anthony, these are your parents now, huh?" Yeah. Pay attention to them. Wait, that, I think we did dispute that fact. We did, yes, yeah, of course. We, I, said, <laughs> I said, don't listen to him. He's not telling the truth. Yeah, and I said, I am not your parent. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then the Poor dad, the dad or the uncle or whatever, you know, took the kid to the car while we're still talking to this man. And he's shouting after the kid saying, Anthony, Anthony, <laughs> ragu sauce. Look up ragu sauce. Anthony, you love the sauce, Anthony. It's a commercial. Your dad doesn't remember, but look it up on the phone. You're going to love it. And it, yeah. It, it, it was... Yeah, it's always great when you're having a conversation with someone and then they start just yelling nonsense at a child as they're trying to leave, you know? It's yeah. like, okay, well... Yeah, exactly. It's a good It's a good way to end a conversation, but I don't even think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was just... Uh, this is happening that's happening this is happening you know yeah uh yeah so it was fun to talk to him for a bit <laughs> it was for a bit we had about the extent of what we wanted to talk to him about but one of the things that he brought up which is not unique to him is in fact fairly common when talking to people around here and also honestly when talking to all new yorkers which i think is a really compelling subject is the concept of knowing neighborhoods yeah so we brought up, well, he asked, we, we told him that we were, you know, doing this walk around. He was interested enough to ask where we're staying. Right. And we told him the St. George area near the ferry. And he was like, oh, that's a bad neighborhood. You know, you got to watch out for around there. You yeah, know. And that was actually one thing that we semi disputed because I said, oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, don't go, don't go out after dark. They'll, uh, you know, they'll strip your bones. They'll eat you like chicken bones or something like that was yeah. what he said. And, you know, we continued the conversation on there from there. And this is something that we've had happen with multiple different people in Staten Island. But as I just said, it's also something that as we've thought about it more after we departed from his presence... This is a thing that I think most New Yorkers talk about. Yeah. The idea of, you know, asking what neighborhood you're from or asking what neighborhood you're going to or any time a neighborhood comes up in general, people have an opinion as to whether it's a good neighborhood or bad neighborhood, as to whether it's a safe neighborhood or not a safe neighborhood. Right, and they want to tell you that opinion. And they want to tell you that opinion. And so we've started to, you know, talk about why it is that people do that mm -hmm. and this includes friends of ours that are not people that are looking to discriminate you know they're, they're fairly progressive people yeah and I I think it comes down to several different things I think it's kind of like talking about the weather mm -hmm. as far as New York goes it's like or like talking about the trains yeah. or something like that. Or even like, this is something I thought of just now, if you do live in the suburbs and it's like 
oh, have you been to Trexler Town recently? They just put in this new mall and they just did this and there's a new apartment complex over there. And it's kind of just like what's happening in the neighborhood too. Yeah, yeah. And of course, historically, well, in the history of the past, you know, 50 to 70 years, uh, all the generations that live in the city, crime was a big topic of conversation right. for a meaningful amount of it. Right. So that, I think, remains as an artifact of, you know, New York history. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I think there is a component where people feel like they want to offer you advice and offer you safety mm -hmm. by communicating what a bad neighborhood is and what to watch out for. Mm -hmm. I think it also enables people to communicate an idea that they have knowledge of the city, which is a boost for self-esteem for somebody that's communicating that to right. you. And I think finally, and most importantly for figuring it out, is that for people that particularly live in, in the city and grew up here, they had, as anybody has in the course of their lifetime, both trauma and a direction from adults, parents, as to how to maintain safety. Right. And so if you go to an area and you feel anxious or you feel unwelcome mm -hmm. or people are making you feel unwelcome, then you internalize those things and you identify that as a bad neighborhood and if or at least as like don't go over there or yeah that's a neighborhood that'll make me feel uncomfortable and then it and then yes it, it gets translates yeah. into right yeah and so the parents are telling you not to go there because they've maybe internalized something previously their fear for your being compromised in some way for mm -hmm. you being you know hurt they can't they can't protect you personally all the time, so they want to instill something in you that will program you to not be, you know, hurt. Right. And yeah, I think that the, the, the experience that we have as children and teenagers get internalized, even if like they're not the most traumatic things, that feeling of discomfort, particularly when you're younger, goes deeper and is more uh, set and mm. is less likely to be thought about later in life. Right. Because it might not even be a thing that you, I mean, for some people, you can go back and like identify a thing that was traumatic and then maybe work on it. But there might be just the act of walking down the street and, and feeling uncomfortable is traumatic, but in retrospect, doesn't register as a traumatic event. Right. Well, I also think, so if I think about my own experience coming into the city, I had the understand, anytime I came into the city as a kid, I was usually with family and it was always, you know, don't go out of my sight, hold on to my hand, we're going to cross the street now, we're, we're going to a show or we're going to this restaurant or we're doing this thing and you're all together and you're staying in one little area. And then when I started coming into the city as a teenager, it was usually with a class field trip or something, and it was 
okay, we're going to go to this museum and you can go off on your own, but only stay within this range because, and it was like, because you have to get back on the bus or something. Like I would never try to go on the subway or go too far because I just needed to know my directions and I needed to get back and not miss the bus back home and get in trouble. And then when I came to move here, there was sort of this like, okay, you're going to the city. You're going into this urban environment where like, there's so many people, there's so many things happening. Be careful, be aware. And so I think since I've lived here, I don't necessarily distinguish between or from the beginning, I didn't necessarily distinguish between neighborhoods. You know, I first moved here, I moved to the East Village. Like, that's not a neighborhood that maybe maybe years ago people would say, watch your back there. But within the last 15 years, that's not really a neighborhood that people would typically say, oh, that's a bad neighborhood. But I moved here from Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I, from the very beginning, I was always kind of aware of my surroundings and didn't necessarily know the different neighborhoods so I'd cross one street and just like okay I'm still aware of my surroundings I'm going back home I'm still aware of my surroundings we moved to Brooklyn I'm like aware of my I'm just like looking around I'm taking it all in I'm making my own decisions on what feels safe and what doesn't maybe I won't turn down this dark alleyway but maybe you know whereas if you grew up here too, I would imagine it's similar to how I grew up where it's like, okay, stay within the neighborhood because of like time, like timing and you have to get back for dinner and you have to do this. And this is where we know people. And if something happens, like they'll recognize you. Mm -hmm. So it's probably a similar thing. the thing about living in a city where there are so many people and a city like New York City like New York City where it's segregated so saying stay within this border either intentionally or unintentionally does end up translating into stay near the people that look like you mm-hmm and don't go into the neighborhoods where people don't look like you. Well, and that's specifically for white people, too, because I think the inverse of this is really when it comes down to it, it isn't communicated this way, but there aren't really any good neighborhoods for people of color. The inverse of this, which is like if you go to a neighborhood where you are not of the same color as as that neighborhood, people are going to think you're a suspect and that's mm -hmm. a bad neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And if you are in your own neighborhood, you are, if you look at the crime statistics, more likely to be a victim of crime mm -hmm. than somebody that is white. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know, I mean, who knows what the, the reasoning for that is, because you're in that neighborhood or because people think that you're less likely to be believed by the police mm. or to be have your crime followed up on who knows but the, the the bottom line is like either you're a suspect or you are a likely victim of a crime mm. and it so you know stay with inside your boundaries yeah i guess it's because you know if you're a person of color and you're going to a white area it's because you could be a suspect and a victim in a different way you know 
yeah, or treated poorly in some way or, you know, made to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Like you don't belong. Yeah. yeah. Which is stories that we've heard from people here about going to different parts in Staten Island. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a real thing. And it's and not just the people that we've spoken to this month, but like, yeah, I think that's yeah, a pretty broadly understood idea, you know, in popular society. Yeah. So I think the thing that makes this tricky is it 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 feels like an innocuous conversation maybe or just you know something that casually is brought up and and you just move on from and there's not really a a strong language built around how to talk about the idea of somebody bringing up that an area is a bad neighborhood or not. Right. You know, and uh, I mean, without kind of halting the conversation in its tracks, you right. know? So we're talking to this guy, this guy that's, uh, you know, as far as we're concerned, I wouldn't say that I, I liked him or I hated him. I, but I was interested in kind of speaking with him for a few minutes so that I could understand the the place that he's from and get, just get some information on what it's like to be one of these people here. Yeah, uh, he, to me he seemed like a character yeah. from the neighborhood Yeah, and we're, we're studying the neighborhood right and now. And then so, you know, the I think the kind of the sh most straightforward way to have that conversation becomes, he said, oh, it's a bad neighborhood and you go, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, there's there's a lot of poor people and a lot of crime people, you know, crime there. And it's like, well, why is it a problem that there's a lot of poor people there? Yeah. And then he has to explain why it's a problem that there's poor people there. And inevitably, either you're not really going to get him to go, oh, you know, you're right. I don't know why I've why I've ever thought that. Yeah, or maybe you could, but it, you know, it's like one person at a time. I, which I mean, I mean, I'm even wrestling with that understanding myself like we're bringing it up we're thinking about it but I'm also wrestling with like why do I feel why like like why do we kind of consider areas where it's not as well maintained to be more dangerous like we do I think I think most people do associate that with I gotta watch my back or I have to look out or that's it's a little more chaotic here and that's I don't know, you know, we have, I have to think about that myself as I walk around and like wrestle with that thought and why are those thoughts coming into my head? And I think to put someone on the spot to think about that in conversation, maybe possibly for the first time they've ever thought about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that being in an area that is not well kept mm -hmm. is an area that you have to be more aware of because I think an area that is demonstrating disorder signals to anybody around it that disordered behavior is more likely and mm. permissible. Mm. The problem for me is that people then start blaming the neighborhood right. and the people that are there for that. And that's not, there are forces more complicated than the people yeah. there that yeah. are causing that disorder. Oh, of course, you know? yeah. So I, I, a good example is uh, Jersey Street, which is just down the block from where we're staying right mm -hmm. now, which, 
we've had an interesting kind of di ongoing dialogue about this past month. We've had people tell us that it's a, not a safe area. And in fact... Multiple people, yeah. yes. And in fact, one person in particular told us to stay away from that street. And then we decided, well, let's go walk it and see what it's like. And we walked it. I mean, there wasn't anything that made us feel like demonstrably unsafe. Mm -mm. But then we got home and found out that there had been a shooting just a couple of blocks from where we had been walking on Jersey Street. Like an hour before. No, a half hour before. Half hour before. And we had heard a woman tell her two children, get home before dark, the lights aren't working right now. And we were like, that's a little strange. Yeah. And it had to have been directly a consequence. We had, it, and we had also seen a helicopter flying above. And that's we, right. We had kind of joked with each other, oh, I bet it's flying above Jersey Street. And it, it was. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> so obviously there's some real stuff that's happening on that street. The feeling that I get walking on that street is something that I would describe as like noise, which is to say that there's a lot of things going on mm -hmm. at any one time and you have to be very aware of those things. And for me, my metric for what is safe or unsafe is is my comfort level being exceeded to a degree where I think I'm projecting that? You know, if I recognize that I have discomfort in me, but I can understand that it's coming from myself principally and I can maintain that, or it's coming from my external environment, but I feel in command enough of myself that I'm not going to project that insecurity, then it's comfortable for me. And I can recognize that that is something I can navigate. I haven't reached the level where my discomfort or where discomfort is exceeded. And right. so, you know, that's where we are right now. But as far as disorder, there, the woman, you know, mentioned that their lights weren't working and there are some police lights down there. And those, for those that haven't seen those ever, they are mobile lighting units that basically lighting poles that yeah. the police set up in areas that are presumably high crime. Look like they run on a generator or something. Yeah. Well, they, they, they kind of like roll up. And, yeah. And they yeah. make noise and they, uh, you know, illuminate an area. And that for me is really problematic because if it's necessary for there to be lights there, then they should build lights there. Like the city should yeah. make it so that there's lighting there. There should not be a NYPD branded lighting system yeah. in the area because that communicates to not only the people that live, to, to the people that don't live there, to the people that live there, that this is an area that needs to be controlled by the police. Yeah. And yeah, it, that's true. It makes it does add to that story of, oh, it's a bad neighborhood. There's always police lights there. The police are always there. And and then for the people that live there, it's like, oh, cool. We're being just like watched all the time. And it makes it so that people avoid it. So that aren't that aren't from the area. So it just allows for like whatever is happening to just circle on itself. Well, and it also look, it, it's this isn't coming from a police of like, uh, you know, being naive, there, there yeah. are people, there are individuals that are bad. 
that exist in areas. And if you put a NYPD light in the middle of an area, there are people that are going to take that as like a badge of honor and pride and a mm. distinction that this is a bad neighborhood. And they're going to start leveraging the fact that it's a bad neighborhood and start doing bad things in order to live up to that reputation and right. take on that attitude. So it, it you're just enabling the problems that you are, I don't even know if you're looking to solve. You're just trying to, uh, I don't, it's like keeping the kitchen light on so that the roaches don't come in, you know? And like mm -hmm. the roaches are inevitably gonna come in anyway. So like, you know, figure out how to actually deal with the problem. Then yeah, it seems more like asserting some sort of power or dominance or, you know, pretending like, hey, look, we're here, we are gonna control this situation, but like, in our way that isn't really helpful. Yeah. But more just in a way that's like, look, we're the law and order and we're here. Yeah. And we see you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. So that's our current ongoing <laughs> thoughts with respect to what a bad neighborhood is. Yeah. Uh, which is to say that for me, I feel like there are no bad neighborhoods. And I feel like that's the guiding principle that I want to continue to move forward with and see how we can kind of build a, f a further idea around that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think this uh, relates actually a lot to something that we were feeling, or at least I was feeling a lot in our walk this week in the South Shore of Staten Island, which, you know, this idea of when people feel uncomfortable, they start labeling it as a bad neighborhood. I did not feel comfortable walking around most of the neighborhoods in, Staten, in South Staten Island. It is the things that made me feel uncomfortable, super homogenous, felt like more wealth, felt like people were noticing that we stood out. There weren't a ton of people walking around and we were walking through a lot of neighborhoods. And when we saw people, it wasn't necessarily unfriendly towards us, but if we try to say hi, you know, occasionally someone would say hi, but a lot of times we were met with this kind of like face of judgment or some kind of feeling of that they maybe they're uncomfortable. Like who are these people in our neighborhood? Why do they look colorful or why are they wearing masks or whatever it was, you know, I'm totally projecting on exactly what someone's thinking, but not welcoming. And then also a lot of flags for different things. Uh, there's the American flag, which whatever, okay, that is what it is right now. But then there's also a lot of Trump flags and other uh, flags that seem to represent something that to me is very scary right now and very discomfort or uncomfortable for me. And signs near Trump flags that say, don't take this flag down or I'll shoot you, you know, like that signals to me way more danger. I want to interact in that neighborhood. I'm like really running through that neighborhood way more than a neighborhood that just has some disheveled houses. <laughs> yeah. 
There were Blue Lives Matter flags as well. Don't tread on me flags. There, there wasn't, I didn't see any Confederate flags. I didn't see any Confederate flags either. So that's good, I guess. But yeah. I mean, it's good. But, yeah. But the other ones are, are confusing. We actually had a lot of conversation about the don't tread on me flags. And I took a moment to just look up the history of that because I, I was confused to see those alongside of the Trump flags and the Blue Lives Matter flags. And often all of those would be in the same yard. And because my understanding of the don't tread on me flag was that it was kind of like a like an anti-government flag and it and it is it so it comes from during the revolutionary war it was an anti-british flag and a flag for freedom and over time so in the beginning it was used a lot um often it would be accompanied by the join or die symbol which is has the cut up snake so I think it's less of like a you as an individual join our club or die, but more we are many different pieces. We must join or we will die. Mm -hmm. So that was often part of the message mm -hmm. with the don't tread on me. And the, the idea of the don't tread on me flag or symbol was don't control me, we are independent, we deserve liberty, mm -hmm. right? And so there was a period of time, I guess, where it wasn't very popular. And then after September 11th in 2001, people started to use it again. And I guess before that, there were some, there was some sort of like libertarian interest with the don't tread on me symbols and then apparently it really got popular again when obama was president mm -hmm. and then it's been sort of taken at this point by current libertarians and ultra right-wing uh political people and the tea party and it's to kind of just it's a really interesting thing just in general how symbols can be transformed and taken over because if you think about like it's anti-government it's about liberty to hang a this anti-government like don't tread on me i want to be free flag next to a blue lives like a blue line flag like a police flag it's like that's like the law and order thing yeah but then the don't tread on me thing should be like anti-law and order. Yeah. So you're not really saying anything <laughs> except that you like the thing that it ends up communicating to someone like me is, oh, a white supremacist lives there. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be told to accept all people. And you don't like the unity that people are looking for. And so you'd rather, you want some people to be tread on, but you don't want to be tread on for your beliefs. Yeah. And your viewpoint. And you want to continue to be the, 
leader or the you know the person that's higher up yeah in society yeah that's what it communicates to me uh-huh yeah i mean it's just aggression and, and not and it's about power and dominance and i don't know if it i don't think many people are thinking as far as you are yeah but that is what their actions do yeah and I, it's, I, I, the more I see the blue lives matter, and then, you know, we were seeing the blue and red lives matter, where it's like the blue line meets a red line, so it's supposed to be, you know, fire. And then we saw one, I swear, it had five different colors on it. It looked more like a Jamaican flag than a U.S. flag. And it, had, it was like for essential workers and first responders and yeah. things like that. And I thought to myself, how backwards are we now that this, I mean, in you know 20 years ago or whatever this would be considered a complete disrespect to the flag mm-hmm. or even like 10 years ago this is a complete mangling and changing of the american flag and now because i i guess because in some ways it was allowed for this side of the conversation to co-opt the flag entirely that they now feel that there's enough ownership over the flag that they can change it to whatever they want yeah and i think that's really unfortunate and I don't know where we go from here moving forward, but I, it does seem incredibly hypocritical uh, among an ocean of other hypocritical things that mm-hmm. you would change the red, white, and blue flag to a black and white flag with a single blue line. Right. Or like a, there, sometimes they have now the, uh, the Punisher logo, so it's a skull on a black and white flag with a blue line, and it's just like, how is this any reasonable level of acceptable right so i right and how do you how do you hear something like black lives matter not take the time to even consider what people are trying to communicate that there is a group of people in this country that don't feel like they're being heard or seen or respected and that we're trying to say hey this group of people matters too. Like that's what we're, that's what the Black Lives Matter means, right? How do you see that? And then say, well, I, I guess I can kind of see the jump to like, well, blue, it, it, it doesn't, to be clear, no. <laughs> but I can see where people's thought processes are. They feel defensive, right? To sit, to do the Blue Lives Matter or the All Lives Matter thing, like, no. If you're listening to this and that's what you think, call me. I'll explain why that's wrong. (laughs) But to then make a flag that's like essential workers, firefighters, police, like you're listing off a whole bunch of people. Why would you not include, like at that point, if you really think that all lives matter, if that's the concept that you believe in, why would you then not start also adopting the Black Lives Matter? Why is that not also part of your flag? Like if you're, if you're so mad because it's only one group of people and you think that that's going against you, why are you not including that group of people? Because mm-hmm. they're the enemy in this situation. Well, yeah, and you're only supporting the lives that are actively oppressing that group of people. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't hold up. I know that there's all these talking points that people have and they might be able to win a debate on points, but it doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well. And anyway, we're seeing a lot of these flags and we've been seeing all these things this week. And uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to see. It makes me angry. It's bullshit. <laughs> it is obviously close to election time. So it's unclear whether or not this level of flags would be out right now. We walked down Highland Boulevard and there are flags just on that road. It's unclear how long the flags have been up. Yeah. But they are definitely a, an area-sponsored thing, not just a, you know, uh, individual home thing. Yeah. And, you know, we just came off the previous conversation when we're saying that there are no bad neighborhoods, and I, I still believe that. I don't think that there are bad neighborhoods. I think that this neighborhood is unusual to anywhere else in the city in that it's really looking to project messages to people that are coming into it. Yeah. I think it's a, I find it a little unfortunate. You know, we've had such a nice time on the West Shore and the East Shore and the North Shore of Staten Island exploring all the nature and the beaches and seeing just how the neighborhoods change and all these sorts of things that we really weren't expecting. It is very diverse and there's all sorts of different people and different, you know, uh, shops and restaurants. And I mean, not that many shops and restaurants, but the ones we see are all sort of like varied, um, like things in them and, and types of food and whatnot. And then I've been feeling so pleasantly surprised by what I'm finding because what I had had this idea of Staten Island being was more homogenous, sort of like blue collar city worker, police firefighter, expected racism. And I was like, wow, I, you know, haven't really been seeing this at all. This is great. And then we go to the south shore of Staten Island and it's all the shit that I thought Staten Island was. It is, it's there. And it's like, you guys are ruining the reputation of your borough. It makes me think like, no wonder it's the forgotten borough because there's this heavy thing pulling it down. And it's, it's just disappointing. Yeah, well, it is definitely the closest thing to what the rest of the country represents or portions of the rest of the country mm. it doesn't really exist except in isolated strains throughout the rest of the city you know we encountered it when we were on our rockaway walk when mm -hmm. we went over to um uh, what's the neighborhood's escaping me right now uh, uh broad channel broad channel no well, well we broad, did channel. In broad channel some a, bit, a little bit in broad channel but um the one that we were breezy point breezy point and broad channel uh, those are smaller areas of concentration mm -hmm. and but they're also not quite as in your face like it's uh you might see one flag over the you know or or one small sign or something but then most of the messages are about strength and like it's not so in your face like aggressive yeah. You don't, maybe people over there lean differently than we do politically, but it doesn't feel like this anger and this aggression and this like excitement that's really like hellish. 
Well, there's also a beach town aesthetic mm -hmm. to that, which comes with it all sorts of other connotations and, uh, and an avenue for acceptance because people are coming and going. Right. There's a tidal understanding of the way of life. And with the South Shore Staten Island stuff, there is a lot of uh, it's it's a settlement. There's not a lot of uh, churn because you mm -hmm. there's nobody coming through that area really. There you have to be going to there. Otherwise, there's there's no reason to be there. So that creates a situation where there's not a lot of exposure for anything other than the community that you grew up with and then as a consequence maybe you're you know people aren't leaving either right and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, expensive home ownership as well which creates gated communities and isolation mm -hmm. also so just not a lot of ability to see other perspectives and yeah i mean i don't i don't think it's great for it to all be isolated down into that area i mean i i guess the fact that it's isolated creates it so it's mm. it's hard to say but the the fact that people in the you know greater new york city area don't have access to that personality type on a regular basis mm is in its own way not good for the city because it doesn't give people the opportunity to come to grips with it and encounter yeah. it and and then they think that their way of life is the only way of life that exists or makes sense and you know it, you know the makes sense you know that's a debatable topic but it, yeah. it there are still millions and millions of people that feel the same way in America. And we think, I think a lot of people in the city think, well, that's an over there issue. Mm. And I don't know how to come to grips with it, but it's not an over there issue. It's, you know, you can, you can take a train or a boat, you know, and get over there in an hour yeah. to experience what that situation is. And I guess even there is kind of a... Well, I think it's a really hard thing to tackle and trying to have conversation like there's not a lot of access to having conversations with people that might think so drastically different from you. And actually, it's really hard to do it in a way that might allow either person to sort of understand the other better because we're it's just so different it and it, it seems to be built on not just like one idea it's like many 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 different ways of seeing the world and understanding society so it's daunting to think about trying to find any sort of like middle ground and then I think also living in New York when it comes to this as a political issue we go blue like we we are going to vote democratic always <laughs> right now i mean like it's so it's not it doesn't feel like oh my gosh we have to turn the tide or we have to convince these people it's kind of like well there's this one area of new york that doesn't agree with 
what most of the rest of the city agrees with. And so, okay, like, they're going to lose anyway. They might have, like, their city council person that represents them that doesn't agree with the rest of city council, but whatever. Like, I think that that is really kind of the attitude of a lot of people mm -hmm. in New York. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's bad or good or I'm not, I don't really have a judgment on it, but it does keep us kind of like just separated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the most valuable thing for me is to recognize what you had said earlier, which is you didn't feel comfortable in this area. And I think it's good to be able to expose yourself to a lot of different areas in New York where you don't feel comfortable. Yeah. So that you can understand the character of the whole experience. Yeah. And that's what we've set ourselves up to do. Yeah. So. I think that we should talk about bagels. Yeah, I think it's time to talk about bagels. <laughs> Lighten the mood here. We're lightening the mood. We're finding the hole in the, pa you know, the delicacy. Uh, I don't know. That was, that's good. That's a good metaphor. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your bagel experience in Staten Island, Mike. Oh, thank you for the segue. Mm. Yes. So we have gone an entire month in Staten Island. I have been judiciously holding my opinions on the bagel culture here in order to give a full report at the conclusion. I think, I don't recall the number offhand, but I would say I have had bagels from 16 different bagel shops Wowee. this week. This week. That's one. This That's month. one every day except for once a week. Yeah. You have I a need, once a week non-bagel. I try once a surprise. week to not have a bagel. For those that are not familiar with the program, <laughs> I have a bagel pretty much every morning, sometime between 9 and 10, at a different location around our given walk route. I have an everything with scallion because that... I wanted to have a control in order to judge each bagel store on an even playing field. Mm -hmm. I think that the scallion cream cheese is nice because it gives us a little complexity, see what you do with a different flavoring, but it isn't so off the deep end and also something that people would more likely to be ordering. And then the everything bagel, generally the favorite bagel of everyone, but also allows mm. for enough expression from the bagel store place if they're so inclined to express themselves. So, lots of interesting things to say about the Staten Island bagel culture that I had no idea existed prior to coming here. Uh, the first one, there are a lot of shops that are multi-function bagel shops. Mm -hmm. This is not something that you see as much in any of the other boroughs. If you do see it, I tend to discount it a little bit insofar as I believe or believed prior to coming here that if you're trying to do a lot of things and be a bagel store, you're not going to do 
the bagels as good as you could. Of course. I mean, you're not getting your hair done at the auto mechanic. No. No, you're not. You want your bagels from a bagel store. Yes. So I, because there were so many of these locations that I was observing in Staten Island, I wanted to be able to give them a fair shake. And so the first couple weeks I was going into these types of bagel and deli, bagel and deli and superette, things like that. And it has some interesting aspects to it. It feels very much like a deli. And typically when you go into a bagel store, there are a very limited amount of options available to you. There's the uh, deli case that has the cream cheeses and maybe some cold cuts, some locks, and then it has the you know the bagel bins uh, next to it, and then it'll have the fridges where you can get drinks. The these bagel convenience store locations, basically you could do your grocery shopping and get the bagels. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Some of them are I mean because I can't eat the bagels. Sometimes I like that. Yeah. Because sometimes they'll have like a. They'll have like the cold salads and stuff too, like the mozzarella salad or like the egg salad or something like that. And then I can do my own review of the place, which I haven't actually, but I could. I'd at least have the option. Yeah. There, <laughs> there are even some locations that had seating, which is very unusual for a bagel mm -hmm. store. It's one place called Bagel Bistro had diner booths set up and then an outdoor area as well. So it just had so many functions. It also served a lot of Greek food. Mm. Uh, we didn't engage in any of that. No. But it was interesting to see. And definitely that location received high marks when I reviewed the interior of it. It's one of the three metrics that I've been using for the bagel store reviews, the interior of the location, the bagel itself, and the cream cheese. So it was very interesting to go in and see what this setup was like and as i said not a very common situation in the rest of the city but fairly common here to be doing two things at once ultimately after trying to give these places a chance for a couple weeks i did come to the conclusion that the bagels at these locations are substandard or i guess maybe not substandard they're standard or maybe slightly above standard however if I'm going for a bagel, I don't want that experience. I'd like a good bagel. Yeah. So I really started to avoid them after the first couple of weeks when I, I, I thought to myself, oh, I, I'm seeing what I'm getting here. I tried to give it an open opportunity, but ultimately my preconceived notions were confirmed. These bagels are not getting the time and interest. They might not even be made here. It's unclear. And I mean, there was even some stores where I was going into and it felt like I was at a gas station convenience store where there was a little kiosk essentially where the bagels were and then you were just one person manning that situation and yet the exterior of the store is just all decals of these you know uh, bagel people dancing and having yeah. a good time. Uh, I give them credit for making the exterior of the place look like it was a bagel shop but that was not the case. It's a trick. It's a trap. Yeah. Bagel trap. Yeah. Bagel trap. Don't go to that store. So <laughs> that was that was one of the interesting things. Also, uh, I would say a lot of those places are up in the north versus the south. The concentration of bagel stores on the whole is possibly greater than any of the other boroughs. 
certainly greater than my casual experience walking through thus far. I mean, there are some bagel deserts mm -hmm. in different boroughs. Mm -hmm. There is, it's maybe a sparser uh, bagel amount in the north of Staten Island versus the south, I will say that. But even in the north, it's pretty readily available. And then in the south, there are everywhere. I yeah. mean, and I think that kind of befits some of the suburban values that exist mm. down there. The ability to get bagels is something that is treasured in uh, those the suburban area. So yeah, the suburban New York areas. Yes, yeah. for sure. So, so yeah, so there's that. As far as the character of the bagel itself in Staten Island, what I've observed to this point, and I guess will remain my conclusion because we're not coming back here uh, anytime soon, the bagels are large, large to extra large size, bigger than anything that we've encountered thus far. I'm sure we How big? I mean, uh, I mean, I've seen them, but I'm asking. I've, as big as your face? I don't know. One of them was. Bigger, they they were pretty close to, you know, I don't know, what, what size would you consider that? Six inches. Six inches? Diameter. Well, I mean, I mean, they're bigger than a tea plate. I would say that, some of the biggest ones. Yeah. Even the, even the Maybe smallest. Maybe even eight inches. Yeah, the smallest ones are still, you know, very big. Yeah. The holes in the bagel, generally pretty small, very, super puffy. And they are usually toppinged, because it's an everything bagel, toppinged on one side only. I think there were two locations that had toppings on both sides. Uh, but in general, uh, just one side only. They weren't particularly creative with the toppings. Uh, it was, you know, like garlic, poppy, sesame, there was some onions on a couple of them, but uh, no like no rye seeds or uh, you know different colored uh, poppy or, or or sesame seeds rather or anything like that that you might experience in different boroughs. There was not salt on a lot of them. You know, there was salt made on the bagel, you know, but then they, you know, melted, I guess, during the process. So there was not a ton of extra salt. That, of course, is like I consider a prerequisite to get into the good to very good bagel territory is there being extra salt crystals on the bagel mm. so that you can kind of really experience it while you're eating it. Get that, you know, that real punch of salt. Yeah. There... But again, you know, they were in the process of making the bagel, so you can still experience it on uh, the shell, you know, in general. Um, so they're big. They're generally, like, very uh, chewy. Uh, there was a, some that were very difficult to chew, but in, uh, by and large, they weren't too difficult mm -hmm. to chew. Uh, and as far as some highlights... There were three bagel stores that I'll, I'll call out right now. Uh, there was uh, Bagel Depot in Eltingville, which stuck out for me, not because of the experience of eating the bagel I had, so much as it was strikingly apparent to me that it, it would be great with locks, mm. which is not a part of the test right now. 
but it there are some bagels that are meant to be bagels that are like sandwich bagels like uh, uh, russ and daughters in the city the the bagel is actually not very good i would say but the consistency of the bagel is such that it really lends itself structurally to locks and yeah. to have it be more like a sandwich and this was one bagel place that was like that it did have uh, a number of salt crystals which is nice the concentration of toppings was on the light side which isn't necessarily bad and in fact for the lock situation i think is pretty good because it it would be just enough to give you the essence of the everything bagel but really to put the focus on the locks itself mm. so i would go back potentially and try locks from the bagel depot location in eltingville that was one i guess it's good to know what kind of bagel you should go in going for totally like you're just getting your control date all yeah but yeah 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 it's nice of you to figure that out for people i mean i <laughs> i'm not just figuring it out for people it struck well, you're me you're figuring it out for yourself too yeah. yeah yeah i mean it 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 really i it's not like i've had another bagel really during this trial where i thought this would be good with locks yeah. in the same way that it like it came to me the second one mm -hmm. is bagels and buns that's in westerly bagels and buns that's right and that had exceptional cream cheese. Mm. And so the thing about this cream cheese and the thing about cream cheese in general is that I think the best cream cheese is warm, not cold. And you're going to get most of your cream cheeses served to you cold because they're in the deli case and they come out from there. And I get it. There's probably some, you know, code that you have to adhere to as far as uh, food prepare handler, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So you'll get a B. I mean, I, I think it would be better to have it out of the case while you're, you know, at peak volume and, and distributing it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're getting a warm bagel, then problem solved, right? You know, the, the bagel warms the cream cheese and everything is copacetic. Uh, but in general, I don't think that cold cream cheese is very good. Uh, or I'm, I, It's fine. It's good. I'll certainly eat it, and most of them are. But I think that the optimal version is warm. That said, this particular instance of cream cheese was served cold, but it was probably the best version I could conceive of it being cold. It was vegetal from the scallion. It was luscious and creamy. It had a quality like a schlag or a whipped cream, a German whipped cream. It was mm. very, very rich and, and silky. And the reason that I'm so anti-cold cream cheese typically is that it starts getting clumpy mm. as a consequence. And then it, uh, the texture is, is not correct and it, you're, it feels heavy and it's not really where you want to be here for whatever reason i, I don't understand why there but it, it may have been that it it was just the right time when i got it where it had been whipped and then just reached that chilled point but still retained some of the the lightness but whatever it was it really exceeded my expectations i gave it a four seven five out of five i i couldn't give it a five because i I have to know it's a five when I mm. when I have it. I wonder and if anyone's going to get a five. 
I don't that's know. That's a big, that's like a big, now that you're doing so many, if you were just, if you were eating them all in a row and then you were rating them afterwards, you could definitely give a five. But like doing it along the way and like you know you have nine months of bagels left and we are going into Manhattan and you would think that the bagels in Manhattan would be better than the bagels in Staten Island. I don't I, know. I don't I know what's I wouldn't happen. necessarily say that. And I'll come no, to a okay. full summation at the conclusion of all the bagels in okay. a second. But, yeah, that cream cheese, uh, smoking hot. Because cold. it's cold. <laughs> and then uh, I would say the best bagel that I experienced in the borough was Bagels on the Boulevard. That was in Dongan Hills on Highland Boulevard, unsurprisingly. And that had a really just solid combination of interior bagel and cream cheese. The interior was a bagel place for sure. It had a really great presentation of the cream cheeses, which doesn't necessarily matter a ton to me, but I like the intention. It had uh, locks on display. It had lots of different... Uh, pastries, if that's what you're looking for, had a long line of uh, drinks available for selection. It had uh, morning uh, talk radio playing on uh, overhead, oh, yeah. and it was just like classic rock, you know, ridiculousness and like prank call show things. Yeah, I love those. And it had so trashy. Yeah, it was, and it had a bunch of uh, classical bagel employees working behind mm -hmm. the counter very efficient uh you know got some good personality and and all the signage on there was on point very uh, specific to the store uh, it just set a great vibe the bagel itself uh great crunchiness to it it was the shell was uh like it snapped in your mouth which was great uh, the topping ratio was uh, very solid, didn't have on both sides, again, not a thing that happens in Staten Island very often, but the distribution was very good, had salt on it, which is nice, and the cream cheese itself, uh, not uh, bagels and buns, mind you, mm -hmm. but uh, it, was, it was warmer, which uh, I liked. It did benefit from some warmth of the bagel, which was nice, mm -hmm. and it was just a smooth, uh, tangy, uh, had some of that uh, scallion uh, punch in there, and I, that was the best experience I had for Staten Island bagels. So very second, close second was Bagel Hut, which was only a couple blocks down the street, and it, it had a much more substantial crunch to the bagel. It was something that I, I it was it really strode the line between difficult to chew and unpleasant and pleasantly difficult to chew, which is a very hard line <laughs> to walk, but they managed to do it. The, I think the only reason that I didn't go with that as the superior bagel was that it almost felt more like a really great crusty bread than mm. a bagel. I mean, it was definitely still a bagel, but it ventured into that territory and I thought that it wasn't really proper to make that the best bagel as a consequence. So that is kind of the four highlights of bagel shops. As far as bagels on the whole go in the borough, I am 
it definitely has a profile, you know, large bagels, uh, again, toppings on one side, uh, convenience is king down here, being able to have access to it and being able to, uh, you know, just to be, to be able to go anywhere and have access to a bagel store and to, uh, you know, be able to live anywhere and not have to worry about where you're going to get your bagels, I think is very important. But ultimately, I think it was a little too one note for me mm. because everything was large and uh, chewy. There was not uh, there was just not the variety of uh, of bagel looks that I would like to see, or at least that I get in other boroughs. There seems to be more of a uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a copycat situation here in Staten Island or what. Yeah. But it there there's a lack of diversity on the bagels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, I guess the other places just want their own characters. Maybe. They want to put their mark on it. Yeah. Or maybe they're just there. Maybe there's more people starting bagel shops that have worked at another bagel shop around Maybe. here or something? I guess I also w might imagine that people kind of like stick to their neighborhood. Like if you go to a lot of the other boroughs, there's probably the local people that are getting their, their bagels, but then it's also like people are coming in to work or they're like traveling through or they're going to visit someone or whatever. It's like there's maybe a little more mobility than like around here. I don't know if people are really like going across the island to try a bait. Like you might just be, you have your spot and you go. It might be more like the vibe I get from Long Island, which I mean, you're from there. I'm not, but like, it seems like you drive to the bagel place yeah. and you get your bagels and you go home. So you're not like, oh, I'm going to go to the other bagel place today. You're right. just like, I'm going to the bagel place. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. So overall, very pleased to have experienced the culture of the bagel stores here mm -hmm. and I look forward to taking this information to the other boroughs and forming an even, even fuller picture of what the landscape of City Bagels looks yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> so three more areas we want to hit specifically about this walk route. You know we've talked a lot about the people that live there and we talked a lot about the bagels that are there but <laughs> There, we want to cover the nature, kind of the what the building type is like, and also just a little bit of summation on what Jesse calls the pigeon people. Mm -hmm. But we'll come <laughs> first with the, the well, parks. Well, you coined it. I've did just I? been using it. You're more. right. I guess I, I think did. So you can put the blame on me if it's a problem. The well, I've been saying it a lot. The parks. I mean, kind of mirror and even maybe are strengthened or stronger than what we've seen in in north and central east west shores they are kind of older forests mm -hmm. and there's also a what's called the uh, blue belt which is a watershed area collection of areas in the lower third of staten island that are meant to be a safeguard for water drain off to mm -hmm. keep the, uh, I guess, prevent flooding from happening more regularly and yeah. keep the um, drinking water uh, safe and whatnot. And 
between the Mount Loretto unique area mm -hmm. and state park that exists, between uh, Wolf's Pond Park, mm -hmm. between uh, the conference house area at the bottom, uh, Clay, Clay Pitts Pond, Clay park. Pitts State Park, mm -hmm. and uh, Bloomingdale Park. Yes. There are just so many opportunities for somebody that lives down here or for somebody that's looking to travel from another borough, doesn't want to go upstate, but, you know, wants to go see some nature. Yeah. So many opportunities to get out in the wild. I'd say particularly the Clay Pitts Pond and Mount Loretto unique area. Yeah. Were very good with spaces to hike and motor or motor on foot around. And the Clay Pitts Pond uh, Park actually has an equestrian area too. We saw no actual horses, but we saw many signs of horse activity. <laughs> signs made by humans and signs made in the form of droppings. Yeah. By horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's mostly hay, it's fine. Yeah, and there was a area where there were chickens and peacocks and cages, yeah. which would be fun for kids to visit. Or adults. Yeah, I mean, we I had a good time. I liked it, we had fun. Yeah, so that was nice. And uh, Wolf's Pond Park as well, I, I really enjoyed a lot. You can see a bunch of uh, that area in the 360 video we made for the week. Mm -hmm. It has uh, an area for migratory birds. It has some deep forest area, mm -hmm. and it is readily accessible by car. Yeah, and the near the conference house too. And there's the you can be right down at the bottom tip of the South Shore, and uh, there's a bunch of old buildings that were part of the, I mean, it's called the conference house because there was a conference at, during the Revolutionary War after the Battle of Long Island. Mm -hmm. There were some attempts at peace negotiation and then, are, and so the, those old buildings are, are there and they're nice to look at. They're not yeah. open right now. I think they're open during non-COVID times. I got the impression. Yeah. And yeah, there's some forest right around there and beach access. And uh, yeah, it's quite nice. It is. It almost feels like a wedding venue. I don't know if there are weddings there. Is. It yeah. may well be. And yeah, it, we that was kind of the one spot we consistently visited each day this week. Yeah. Because it was at the very bottom of the island. So it felt like a nice place to do the turn. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And yeah, the we mentioned the clay pits and the uh, Bloomingdale Park. Those are on the kind of northern side of the South Shore. Right. And so we, you know, there's there's a distinct split between that portion and the portion where the Mount Loretto area is, mm -hmm. and uh, the Wolf's Pond. Uh, the the Mount Loretto and Wolf's Pond area. There's a lot more residences around it, it would seem, whereas there is a, a much more industry towards the south end and then the parks and then not as much generally residential that seem to exist up there. So all in all, uh, just more fantastic space to visit yeah. for those looking for 
a city getaway, or if you were living there, just an opportunity to connect with nature on a more regular basis. Yeah. So there's that. And then there were the houses that kind of occupied down there. And I guess just in, in general, talking about the profile of the buildings, there are a lot of mall areas. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, I don't know. Kind I, of smaller, though, than yeah. like on the, the more northern and central parts of Staten Island, I feel like there were like these bigger industrial mall areas with like big strip malls yeah and then in the southern shore it felt more like there'd be like a plaza yeah where there's you know like a walgreens and a starbucks and a bagel shop and a bakery and a deli and like that's it yeah and then there'd be another one like a few miles away yeah but yeah, but not this like different than the central Staten Island where there's like an expanse of like a actual mall. Yeah, mall. there's that one, the Staten Island Mall, I believe is what it's called, right. that we would go by pretty routinely because it was plop in the middle yeah. of many of our routes the first three weeks. Here, there were these plazas Jesse's referring to, and then there were also a number of smaller town feelings particularly right. along Amboy Road, which you mentioned earlier. There's Arthur Kill to the north of this area, Amboy's in the middle, and then Highlands at the bottom. And walking down Amboy, a lot more, I don't know if they're officially historical designation homes, but they have that feel. And yeah. just a- uh, A lot of homes that had awards. That's right, <laughs> yeah. They just have a little plaque that says award. Yeah. And just, the, again, these small town feels where yeah. it's several blocks of like a pizza place, a convenience store, you know, maybe a dance studio or something yeah. like that. And then there was, that's reminding me that on those streets, many, multiple times we saw the same group of young boys, like seven to ten years old, all with their bikes sitting outside of this pizza place. And it must have been, we must have just happened to be walking by like right at the end of school time, whatever school time means these days. But yeah, it was so funny. And they were like, they seemed like they were just like copies of adults, like small version copies of adults. Right. They, the way they were talking, the one kid was talking about like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go in and get soda. I know the owner in here, you know? I need, I need the energy. And like the other kids just seemed to like, yeah, I get, like, sure, yeah, yeah, go get your, like, like no one questioned that. Uh, at one point they were riding their bikes behind us and, and yelled out, hey, hey, you, you wanna move to the side? There's a bunch of kids coming right here. Yeah, yeah, stay right there. And they're like seven years old. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were. Uh, it was funny to, they were a little to witness crew. that. Yeah. yeah. And so, I think that leads us pretty well into the pigeon people. Yeah, so what we're calling the pigeon people is um, these groups of mostly elderly Italian men that set up in the parking lot of a park or the concrete area near the bathrooms at a beach or I mean, mostly parking, mostly just in the parking lot of any given park. Sometimes like on a pier, 
but there there will be anywhere from like six to twenty five men sitting in plastic chairs that they've brought or folding chairs that they've brought and just sitting there and and like bullshitting. Yeah, yeah. We talked about uh, the beach pigeon people in week two, mm -hmm. and it's our awareness of this phenomenon has only grown since yeah. then. I, yeah, we have seen it at least in eight different locations. Yeah. And it is really unusual because when you see this type of activity in other parts of the city, not only does it generally involve a greater diversity of age and whatnot and gender, and there are, mind you, some instances around here where it is, uh, Actually, not really a lot of kids, but there is a diversity of gender. But yeah, occasionally there will be some women yeah. sitting with them, too. But, but it's mostly, mostly old men. Yeah. And so when you see this in other neighborhoods, in addition to the diversity, there is typically an activity that's happening. People are cooking, or there's a game of you know street volleyball happening, mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, or they're eating, or they're drinking, or they're doing yeah. something. And this really seems exclusively to be a freestyle bullshit session. Yeah. Which is, we're, we're thinking like, why is this happening? And, and we think that we come to the conclusion that it is the evolution of stoop conversation back from when Staten Island received a wave of people back in the 60s. And this is people continuing that tradition in a way that, uh, I don't know, I, I guess they, there are no stoops. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't think... wave I've... of people from Brooklyn yeah. and, and Queens. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how many stoops I've seen, if any, since we've been here. Yeah, there aren't a lot of apartment buildings. Yeah. And even, yeah, the houses that have, stu you know, it's like house stairs, which is just completely different. You're like, you're not going to sit on your stoop and, like, yell to the next house that's... 50 yards away or whatever you know yeah and it for the, the the places that they choose to set these things up are baffling i mean it, right in the middle of the parking lot when there is readily available grass anywhere yeah. or on the pathway of a park rather than the grass on either side so that you you know people come and walk through yeah it's just like it almost feels like there is a an element of needing to take up space that's generally meant for <laughs> navigating around that fulfills it in some way. Right. And yeah. Well, they, it's kind of like it feels a little bit like tailgating without the uh, whatever part of tailgating is eating. Right. Gating, I guess. They're still like at the tail of their car. Yeah. Kind of, you know, like they're, they're like, at any moment, they could just, like, go into their own private space, like, it, which kind of relates to the stoop thing, too, where it's, like, at any moment, you could just, like, go back into your apartment. Yeah. So, like, at any, at any minute, you could just, like, go in your car, I guess. Yeah. And we were, we were thinking how this might evolve into future generations, and something we did see at a couple of locations was dog runs being very popular. Mm -hmm. There was one where a whole community was getting a dog run up to speed after being closed for COVID for a really long time. And there was this other one we passed where we passed it at 
8.30 at night, and there were still three men and three dogs in complete darkness with a tent set up where I earlier in the day, and we only really know that it was early in the day because we passed it earlier in the day a couple of days later, there were maybe 20 people there yeah. with 20 dogs. Yeah. And it was just the community event to go down and hang out. And it, yeah. it seemed... It's kind of cool. I like that. Yeah. I, it's because I, I mean, I definitely pay attention to the dog runs everywhere because I like dogs and we don't have one. And uh, <laughs> when we walk through, when you walk by a dog run in Manhattan or Brooklyn, it's usually a lot of like small dogs in sort of interacting with each other. The owners talking to their dog and looking at their phone, but not talking to the other owners. Like you mm -hmm. rarely see dog owners interacting with each other, but you often will see a dog owner like, hey, Sparky, get away from her. Stop it. Nah. Like not really looking at the owner like, huh, sorry. But like uh, this like weird, awkward, like very city, like I don't right. want to do, I don't want to be your friend. And then in what we've noticed here is like, yeah, these community, like this, like there'll be a tent set up and chairs around, oops, sorry. There'll be a tent set up and chairs around and people engaging with each other and like letting the dogs hang out. It's almost like, yeah, we're at like a barbecue and we've brought our kids and like they're fine. Yeah. It's also usually bigger dogs, which yeah. makes sense. There's more space out here, but yeah, yeah it's an interesting, I don't know what sparks that. Yeah. So perhaps that's the future of the pigeon people, as we're calling them. Yeah, dog park. But yeah, as it stands, just a whole lot of bullshitting in a circle. Yeah. In the middle of a parking lot. <laughs> One of the hallmarks of Staten Island. Yes. And with that, that will conclude our Staten Island time. Yeah, I think that's all we have to talk about right now. Yeah, so pleased to have been able to be out here. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for this project, we never would have experienced anything like this. Yeah. And it's been great. We didn't even really address where we're sitting right now. But if you want to learn more about where we are, you should just go back and listen to last week's episode. Yeah, it'll, it'll tell you all about where we stayed in this really awesome intentional community on Staten Island. And yeah, you can you can go back to last week and hear all about that. Yeah. But thanks so much for watching and or listening. If you like this, please like it in a <laughs> virtual way and send it along to people. Subscribe. We do this every Tuesday. We also have the 360 videos that we release every Saturday of our walk. We have pictures a lot up on Instagram. You should check those out. It includes some pictures of the different political signs this past week that mm -hmm. we saw, which are crazy and definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen them. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to have the clothing up soon. So we just keep on creating different stuff for you all. And we hope you like it. And if you do, please let us know because it helps us keep doing this. Yeah. So. Thanks so much for watching. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.